quite a bit, but we will let you know. I will get an official tally. You can still call. Help us make it. 1-800-439-5732. Thanks for listening. And you are listening to the 94.1 KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, and also KFCF in Fresno. Hello, Chris. Hey. Oh, you want me on that one? I'm over on this one. Where are you? Okay. Hello, Deb. And all the boys and girls in Radioland. This is Chris Welch back with you again on our fundraising drive. And for the next half hour, I'm going to be bringing you the sounds of African-American entertainers, the lives of black entertainers. This is an audio documentary uh, coming from the Pacifica archives. It was originally produced, I believe, uh, at least pieces of it right here at KPFA. And it features voices and performances of Lena Horne, Dorothy Dendridge, Ruby Dee, Paul Robeson, Don Bogle, uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and we are bringing you uh, just a little piece of that for the next half hour. But we are offering you the entire four CD set for $120. Uh, we're, liking, we're wanting you to call 1-800-439-5732. And I'd like to make about $1,000 in this half hour. Uh, between you and me, we should be able to do that. So, Blacks in Hollywood. Hollywood. That's the number of it. We are in um, Black History Month, of course, but even if we weren't, this is an invaluable uh, piece of history. And it also talks about uh, the present and indicates the future, as history always tends to do. So without further ado, let's hear uh, whatever we can get to of this four CD set. So it's over four hours of material uh, on Blacks in Hollywood. There were some factors which enlarged somewhat the opportunities for black entertainers. Among them, the emergence of Harlem's Lafayette Players, a little theater movement. Black plays by white writers like Connolly's Green Pastures, Hayward's Porgy and Bess, Green's In Abraham's Bosom, and O'Neill's All God's Chillin' Got Wings, and Emperor Jones offered blacks some employment. Productions such as these opened a few doors for black people, but the movie roles, for example, were confined to bit parts as domestics, witless comics, or other exotics. Lincoln Perry, the man white America knew as Stephen Fetchett, distressed proud blacks because of his bumbling gait, head-scratching, eye-rolling bewilderment, and drooping dialect. He convulsed millions of whites, and earned and spent more than a million dollars. Hattie McDaniel and Louise Beavers appeared in hundreds of films as maids or mammies. But the tradition laid down by the eminent black actor Ira Aldridge, whom London acclaimed in 1833, could not be Jim Crowed out of existence. The artistic vanquishment white America imposed upon black artists simply could not still the voices of Marian Anderson and Paul Robeson, though it tried. When Roland Hayes, the famed black vocalist, first heard Marian Anderson sing in Philadelphia, he urged her grandmother to see that the girl was trained and began recommending her for singing engagements. 
Before the fees came, her church took up a collection for a suitable dress. But soon she began earning $5 fees for recitals before black congregations and socials. When she was still in high school, she was already making tours of southern colleges. On the first of these trips, when she was compelled to move to the Jim Crow car as the train reached Washington, Marian Anderson was overwhelmed with a sense of shame. It was to be her first experience with the traumas that threatened a young black artist's equilibrium and integrity. Showing great promise, she swallowed hard and applied for instruction at a Philadelphia conservatory. She was told bluntly, we don't take colored. Eventually, after a couple of setbacks, her victory at a major vocal competition in New York City in the late 1920s brought her both an appearance with the New York Philharmonic and an upturn in her fortunes. Earlier trips to Europe for study and experience were followed by a two-year stay starting in 1933. She had full bookings. Toscanini's praises of her voice brought her extraordinary notice. By 1936, she was one of the nation's preeminent concert artists. The South, of course, refused to hear her. And when the old bags who comprised the daughters of the American Revolution denied her the use of Constitution Hall in Washington, the feces hit the fan. At the insistence of Charles Houston, a black dean of the Howard Law School, there was arranged an alternative an Easter Sunday morning recital at the Lincoln Memorial that assembled a huge audience. Marian Anderson became the first black woman to sing at the Metropolitan Opera. Her voice, unique. Her honors, myriad. More honored even than Miss Anderson was Paul Robeson, who was 70 years old on April 9th, 1968. His father was a fugitive slave who worked his way through Lincoln University. He married the college-trained daughter of a proud family who had lived in Philadelphia for generations. One ancestor served in the Continental Army. Another had been a co-founder of the Free African Society in 1787. And others of the family were teachers, artisans, and otherwise distinguished. Paul Robeson was the youngest of several children. His mother died in a fire when he was very young. He was forced to attend segregated schools at first, but when the family moved to Somerville, New Jersey, an unsegregated high school was available to Mr. Ropes. He made an excellent record there, working meanwhile with his father's Sunday school as superintendent and leading the singing with a voice that was to make musical history. He won a competitive state scholarship to Rutgers and became the third black man to be admitted to the university. His performance on the football team won him all American honors. This despite the fact that he was repeatedly Sunday-punched by opposing teams who singled him out. Copping Sundays, that is, punching the groin of blacks while players were piled up after a tackle, was part of the game. He earned four varsity letters, in addition to junior year election to Phi Beta Kappa. As Mr. Du Bois had done previously, Paul Robeson received a dazzling array of records in oratorical competitions. At Columbia University Law School, his formidable reputation as athlete and scholar, his personal warmth, and his talents as a mixer gained him great admiration. He took his law degree. He supported his studies and later a wife 
by playing professional football. Black Papers found his exploits with the Milwaukee Badgers excellent copy. He was one hell of a football player. There were, according to Saunders Redding, two brief flurries of news headlines in the national press during this period. One came when it was rumored that a group of entrepreneurs had confidentially pledged a million dollars to back Paul Robeson as the prospective heavyweight champion of the world. But Mr. Robeson was not interested in prize fighting, so nothing came of this. The second came when, having graduated at the top of his law school class and having been urged by his wife, he accepted a position in a prominent white New York law firm. The white press's reaction to this was mixed. The black press was elated. But writing briefs for cases involving railroads, banks, and hundreds of thousands of dollars hardly seemed calculated to help Robeson fulfill the service to black people of which his father had spoken. The Reverend William Drew Robeson had been a great influence in the lives of his three sons, the eldest of whom was a physician and the middle one a minister. Paul Robeson told a friend of those days, I want to plead the case of the misunderstood and oppressed peoples before the highest courts of the land. I want to help create laws which will guard their homes and children. I want to legislate those laws. I want to speak out so the whole world will hear. In the law firm, he prepared brilliant briefs, but white associates were chosen to defend them in court. He knew why this was so. A black lawyer simply did not represent white clients before a court of law. And they began to experience real frustration. His wife sent the dilemma. She was too discerning to entertain the prospect of his frittering his life away in a picayune civil practice, which was the fate of so many black lawyers. She helped widen his musical and theatrical horizons. By now, 1924 had come, and with it, the interest in the black man and in black life, the subjects for serious art was beginning to flower. And Paul Robeson had an innate talent for dramatics. He had a superb but untrained bass voice. And in 1924, he acted in an amateur production at the Harlem YMCA. Later, Kenneth McGowan said, Some magic emanated from the man. And James Light spread the word in Greenwich Village that Paul Robeson was a born actor. Before too long, the playwright Eugene O'Neill and James Light, the director, had prevailed upon him to play Jim Harris in All God's Chillin' Got Wings. In the words of Saunders Redding, the announcement of this brought on a wind of controversy and a rainfall of protest. All God's Chillin' was that kind of play. It dealt in somber, realistic terms with the melancholy married life of a mixed couple. The newspapers protested playing a black man opposite a white female. Mr. Robeson was once again in the headlines of the white press. He would be national news for nearly the next half century. In the spring of 1925, he gave his first concert of Negro spirituals at the Greenwich Village Theater. Alexander Wolcott lauded him as the finest musical instrument wrought by nature in our time. Later that year, he went to London and played the Emperor Jones to great applause at the Ambassador's Theater. He returned briefly to the United States and found himself a much sought-after celebrity, even by some whites. Back in Europe... He saw the great black poet Claude McKay, who had just returned from the Soviet Union with glowing reports. 
1927, Mr. Robeson made a triumphant concert tour of the United States and again returned to Europe to fulfill engagements. From Europe, his music and his dynamic personality radiated all over that continent. He gave command performances. He sang the sorrow songs of blacks. The London Daily Express proclaimed him more than a great actor and a great singer. He is, the paper said, a great man who creates the soul of a people in bondage and shows you its true kinship with the fettered soul of man. We became like little children as we surrendered to his magical genius. This piece and others in the same vein were reprinted in the United States. American blacks were strengthened in their belief that Mr. Robeson was their instrument, their ambassador to the world. When he sang Old Man River in the first American revival of Showboat, Edna Ferber, the author of the book, wrote, I have never seen an ovation like that given any figure of the stage, the concert hall, or the opera. That audience stood up and howled. They applauded and shouted and stamped. The show stopped. He sang it again. The show stopped. They called him back again and again. was in the spring of 1933, a year of the Great Depression. White America was in deep trouble. Black America could only show empathy. Black people had been in an economic depression since 1619. Black playwrights without producers, black writers without an audience, black artists without a market. They were acutely aware of the illness of a society that thwarted their creative drives. Paul Robeson, as with other American intellectuals, was cognizant of the fact that the Depression called for a mandate of social change. He became a man for all seasons. In 1958, on Pacifica Radio in Berkeley, when he was 60, he verbalized a portion of his political philosophy. Mrs. Elton Knight Thompson was at the KPFA microphone with Mr. Robeson when he discussed his reasons for returning to the United States from Europe. I made this decision some years ago. I say certainly that I spring essentially from here. Uh, like you threw the other day about the Indians in North Carolina. If you recall, that was in Robeson County. Yes, I noticed that in the item. Now, this is a very interesting thing which I point out in my book and which explains a good deal, too, of how I feel. Now, I was born on the edge of Robeson County. And my father is Robeson and was a Robeson because he was a slave, my own father, a slave, of the Scottish Robesons who still control Robeson County in North Carolina. So, my, so I approach these problems from a very close point. And so, but I have a home, and my people are tobacco workers and sharecroppers today. 
on that on plantations in that county. But a part of that soil belongs to me. That's, that's my roots. That they said these are my roots in this country. On the other hand, also, I felt that uh, 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 so somewhere the contributions that I had. Uh, could make some contribution from my background traveling about the world. However, I never expected, I am quite willing to say, that I would be restricted from traveling. <laughs> yes. Well, tell me, Mr. Robson, was your commitment to the political scene then largely as a result of uh, your feeling about your own people or our own people, let's put it? Yeah. Uh, or did it have other overtones of I political first, conviction? Like, first, it starts uh, as an American Negro interested in my own people. The other great change is very constant in my mind. I was in the Welsh Valley. And the Welsh people sing very much like we do in, in the Negro people. Yes, I've heard Many of our songs, beautiful songs. And I was uh, one of the few outsiders who, who has sung at a Welsh Estetforth, their, their national festival which has gone on since the time of the Druids. And I went down in the mines with the workers. And they explained to me that, Paul, you may be successful here in England, but your people suffer like ours. We are poor people. And you belong to us. You don't belong to the, to the big weeks here in this country. And so I today feel as much at home in the Welsh Valley as I would in my own Negro section in any city in the United States. And I just did a broadcast by translating cable to the Welsh Valley a few weeks ago. And here was the first understanding that the struggle of the Negro people, or of any people, cannot be by itself. That it is a human struggle. And so I was attracted then to... to uh, met many members of the Labour Party, and my politics embraced also the common struggle of all oppressed peoples, including especially the working masses, specifically the laboring people of all the world. And that, that defines my philosophy. It's a joining one of, uh, we are a working people, a laboring people, the Negro people. And there is a unity between our struggle and those of white workers in the South. I've had white workers shake my hand and say, Paul, we are fighting for the same thing. And so this defines my attitude toward socialism and toward many other things in the world. I do not believe that a few people should control the wealth of any land, that it should be a collective ownership in the interest of all. Eventually, Paul Robeson took up the play that had always fascinated him. In London in 1930, he starred in Shakespeare's Othello. With a feeling that never had before been brought to this classic tragedy, he played the definitive role of the great-hearted Moor. His portrayal of simple weakness before the poison of jealousy, his towering brutal passion, and his sorrow, as he found that he had killed the thing he loved, brought him the widest theatrical acclaim. As with all God's children, there were strong taboos against a black man acting opposite a white woman in such a passionate and brutal part. But Mr. Robeson lifted the play above the taboo. In the fall of 1943, he opened a gala season of Othello in New York that actually exceeded his earlier London triumph. I'd like to do a short excerpt from Shakespeare's Othello. <laughs> it is the last speech of Othello. He has killed Desdemona. From savage passion, no. Othello came from a culture as great as that of ancient Venice. He came from an Africa of equal stature. And he felt he was betrayed, his honor was betrayed, and his human dignity was betrayed. And so when they come for him from Venice, 
He speaks and says, Trust you. A word or two before you go. I have done the state some service, and they know it. Unlucky deeds relate. Speak of me as I am. Nothing extenuate, nor set down aught in malice. Then must you speak of one that loved full wisely, but too well. Of one not easily jealous, but being wrought. Perplexed in each stream of one whose subdued eyes, albeit unused to the melting moon, drop tears as fast as the Arabian trees, their medicinable cup. Set you down this, and say besides, that in Aleppo once, where a malignant in a turban turk, be the Venetian introduced the state. I took by the throat the damned heathen dog and smote him. from a four-CD collection uh, from Pacifica Archives, Pacifica Radio Archives, entitled Blacks in Hollywood. And it was produced, some of it was produced by Gene D'Alessi right here at KPFA. That was his uh, voice narrating much of what you heard. And what we have not heard, and which is still available to you on the f- CDs, is uh, an interview with Lena Horn, uh, an interview with Dorothy Dandridge, interview with uh, Ruby D. In fact, Dorothy Dandridge is interviewed at a freedom rally in Los Angeles. It says Wrigley Field, but I didn't know there was a Wrigley Field in Los Angeles. I thought Wrigley Field was in Chicago, but what do I know? Uh, Ruby D. Uh, in uh, in 1964, Lena Horn interviewed in uh, San Francisco in 1966, and much of the and of course the Paul Robeson. Uh, interview was from 1958, also right here at KPFA. We have a long, long history of paying attention to artists that are making a statement. And in fact, any one of these artists, just by virtue of being African American in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, being a working artist, uh, made a statement uh, because there were so few of them allowed to work, and as you heard, the work that they were allowed was so limited as well. 
We are offering you this four-CD set, A Living History, from Pacifica Archives of Blacks in Hollywood, uh, for $120 to KPFA. This is our fall fundraising drive. We are, as usual, turning to you for our financial sustenance so that the radio station can continue to operate and can continue to bring you uh, information that you can't get anywhere else and examination of issues that you will not get anywhere else, such as the uh, issue of African-American artists and their difficulties, their particular difficulties due to the racism of the broader society and the restrictions that were placed on their creativity. And while the the voices that you hear may be the exception, such as Paul Robeson, surely an exception to almost every rule that was ever written, he himself also, as you've heard, was uh, very limited in what he was able to do. Marian Anderson, uh, Lena Horne as well. These are these are uh, activist artists. None of the folks that are in this series were people that just uh, took it and didn't uh, complain. They all were very strong activists for equality, for racial equality. And if you appreciate KPFA's and Pacifica's emphasis on equality, uh, we'd like you to support the radio station that you're listening to. Go to your phones right now and call us and subscribe at 1-800-439-5732. 1-800-439-KPFA. Uh, we're looking for your phone call at those numbers. You can also pledge securely online at www.kpfa.org. kpfa.org. Uh, this particular four CD set is more than four hours of historical information and interviews and voices of folks that uh, were truly pioneers, even though they might not have wanted to be. That was the role thrust upon them by the, the very uh, strange and, and unnatural limitations of their society. The racism is what I'm talking about of the society. And yet uh, their artistry uh, blossomed uh, and was undeniable and had to be dealt with. And that gave them a platform to say things about their politics. And each and every one of them did in very strong and uh, unforgettable and undeniable terms. Uh, if you'd like to have this incredible 4D C CD set uh, we can, we'd be happy to mail it to you for $120 to KPFA when you call 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-KPFA. We have about four minutes in this half hour before we go to Free Speech Radio News, I believe, and uh, we would like to uh, get you to the phone in those four minutes because we wanted to, I wanted to try to raise a thousand dollars in this hour and we've only had one call so far. So either that person <laughs> pledged a thousand dollars, which I highly doubt, or we all, the rest of us have to get busy. Anything that you can afford to donate is very gratefully received here, whether it's $25 or $60. Talk to the folks in the phone room. There are several thank you gifts at different rates and I know you can get a KPFA t-shirt of fab uh, designer KPFA t-shirt for your $60 pledge. For $120 we'd like you to uh, we'd like to send you the Blacks in Hollywood 4 CD set from the Pacifica Radio Archives. 
information that was available only here on KPFA, especially the interview with Paul Ropers, and that's just a case in point that Elsa Knight Thompson conducted in 1958. Uh, this was by no means the only uh, unique to KPFA uh, recording that you'll find on this collection of blacks in Hollywood. The interviews with Lena Horne, which will be uh, once you, it's it's will be extremely eye-opening. She, as you might imagine, is very frank. And Dorothy Dandridge, whom you might have thought was was more retiring, shy and retiring, au contraire. Uh, wait till you hear what she has to say. And, of course, uh, the beloved Ruby D, whom I was fortunate enough to meet and interview myself. Uh, all of these folks, in addition to the Paul Robeson pieces that you heard, there's four CDs over four hours of stuff here. Uh, 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-KPFA, invaluable material, which is what the Pacifica Radio Archive specializes in, uh, the archives of incredible stuff that has come through the doors of KPFA. And why would Paul Robeson come to KPFA? Why would he not go to OCBS or some player? It's because, A, I don't know whether commercial radio would be wanting to talk to him uh, just because of their own uh, politics at the time. But because he would have known something about KPFA's politics, because by 1958, it was well known that KPFA was involved in civil rights. We were uh, covering uh, things. We were interviewing people. We were producing radio documentaries at a great rate, something which we don't do very much anymore in these uh, more modern times. Uh, I regret that, actually. But the, what you were listening to today was an example of the documentary f- format uh, from Gene uh, D'Alessi in the 60s uh, producing here at KPFA and Blacks in Hollywood the four CD set we've got one person on the line we need another one for sure because we're about to be out of time here and I really oh boy $320 is how much we've raised so far we need to raise uh, I wanted to raise a thousand I'd take whatever I can get at this point especially since we've got less than a minute to go 1-800-439-5732 1-800-439-KPFA please call and support listener-sponsored radio. Become a part of this team, this community.